Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. People have wanted us to talk about this because obviously. Here's the NPR headline. Michigan prisons ban Spanish and Swahili dictionaries to prevent inmate disruptions. We have this problem of trying to stop any sort <laughs> of conversations that we don't understand. And when it's something like this, it feels like just like a violation of, of human rights here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the prisons often will ban books because they right. think they're da- dangerous for their inmates. This right. does seem unusual to me. I don't know. Yeah, I've heard wonder. of a prison system banning dictionaries before. And then the reason why they ban the dictionaries is... Um, here's what the spokesperson says. If certain prisoners all decided to learn a very obscure language, they would be able to then speak freely in front of staff and others about introducing contraband or assaulting staff or assaulting another prisoner. And then there also there's also the layer of, like, they're worried of uh, prison uprisings, which do happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for yes. reasons. For, like, good reasons. But yeah. anyway... But yeah, what I what I found the most hilarious part was that they dared to call these languages obscure. Right. And I think does it not just play into the idea of just like this American monolingual like society we have that we would <laughs> think that I guess, anything other like, than English is obscure? I guess, but calling Spanish obscure even under those circumstances seems really strange to me. I like them calling Swahili obscure which is also vastly incorrect makes right. sense to me that they would think that it just right. doesn't make sense that they would make that claim for spanish it's like the one language that i would be like how could they right. even given the situation in the united states call that obscure and then uh, uh um oh god i can't remember who it was someone on twitter was like oh it's even worse than you think it's all languages. And I'm like, well, no shit. If they're, yeah, yeah. If they're calling Spanish obscure, then literally right. all the other languages are also going to be banned. Like, you shouldn't be yeah. shocked by this. <laughs> no, yeah. I thought that it entailed the other. I was like, I think, right. you know, yeah. Yeah, calling Spanish obscure is <laughs> particularly egregious because I can only assume that Spanish-speaking people are overrepresented in the prison systems. Presumably. Yeah, I know that to be true in certain cities and in certain states. I don't know about Michigan particularly. But yes, your inmates speak languages other than you. I just think for this to to say that they're trying to stomp out like uprisings or just, you know, like why do they think it's important now to do it? Yeah, the timing is weird. Yeah, they've always been there. Um, There has to be like something else. (laughs) Uh, what's precipitating it? Maybe more people were learning these languages. So that, so it's all, it's clearly not the people who are already speaking the languages that they're worried about. It's right. They're worried about the people who want to learn it, I guess, right? Who are right. taking out these dictionaries and trying to learn, again, Spanish? <laughs> right. I know. Uh, okay, some on. of the guards, you gotta believe, a good handful In of Michigan? The... No? You don't think so? I don't know. I'm not going to say none. Right. I'm going to say it's less likely than it would be in Arizona. Sure. Yeah, I guess I'm... I also have a very, uh, you know, my point of view is only so large. Yeah, and you might be right, actually. It might be the case that a lot of them do. I just have a suspicion that it'll be a smaller percentage in Michigan than in Arizona. Yeah. But regardless, 
I don't know what they're going to do with these dictionaries. You can't really learn a language through a dictionary, right. but it can help you, right? Obviously, you need you need to learn the vocabulary, so it can be helpful. But if presumably, you're also taking classes or something, right? Maybe talking with another inmate. Taking away the dictionary if you're doing the talking thing, it's not going to change anything. You can still learn it. You yeah. just don't have that physical. I don't know. The, I assume they're worried about codes, <laughs> like ciphers. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like. A dictionary can help with that, but it's not necessary. And so I just, I'm like, I don't know. This seems very bizarre. Maybe I'm missing something. Like, I know what they're, I feel like I know what they're doing and why, but it also feels futile. So, but maybe they're missing something. I don't think you are. I just don't think they realize how futile it is when it comes to learning a language or thinking about it that deeply. Right. And, and also futility might not even be the, the point. It doesn't matter. They just want to punish people. Right. Yes, Absolutely. I it's so bizarre and yeah the whole Spanish is obscure thing is just ridiculous oh so you know like we were talking about whether or not Michigan if the um prison guards are you know what amount of them might be Spanish speakers um I've been thinking about this kind of thing a lot because Uvalde what was happening with the press coverage and there have been a lot of Latinx journalists who are pointing out that these press conferences aren't being delivered in Spanish and English. Or any other language. Right. Not yeah. ASL either. Right. Nothing. And normally there's ASL, at least. Yeah. Especially, I mean, even if it's not their normal practice, I feel like... For something this big. Exactly. Yes. More and more now, when there's, like, national tension, they start... They, they do ASL, which, again, should always be doing. But, um, yeah, and, like, to the point where, like, um, Spanish language television people have been asking <laughs> for some answers in Spanish. And it's like, this community, I, I forgot, I looked it up, but it's like nearing 90% like Mexican-American or Mexican, yeah. yeah. And again, you don't have to be a Spanish speaker to be Mexican-American or whatever, but no, many no. of like this community are fully yeah, when bilingual. Yeah, is that high. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or just speak Spanish. It's just like this... This disconnect between like who the leaders of Uvalde are, because like the mo- the mayor is is Anglo, but like all of the the people that are being served are like these Spanish speaking Mexican and Mexican Americans, and to have all of this you know this happening in their front yard or you know whatever, and to not have access to the media is just enraging. And then they stopped even talking to anybody, like yeah. the police anyway. And just like, yeah, the communication breakdown is fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's bad. It is really but bad. But I'm not, I mean, I was actually kind of shocked when they weren't doing anything in Spanish because I was like, well, I mean, this is like a, a, a population where you would expect that to be normal. No, not happening. But then they just stopped talking altogether. And it's like, yeah, this is not a functioning place. No, no. It shouldn't have had to take this to find out, but yeah. <laughs> oh, oh well. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Anyways, slightly less uh, dire, <laughs> but still bad. Oh, well. <laughs> Ryanair. Do you know Ryanair? No, is that an airline? <laughs> it's an airline. It's, oh, okay. an Irish, it's an Irish airline that's known for cheap flights within Europe. Okay. If you were to go to Europe and you wanted to fly from one place to another, you would probably fly Ryanair because it's really cheap. Okay. Which is a shame because they have great trains. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was the thing, to use the trains. 
But anyway, so Irish airline Ryanair is now forcing South Africans to take a test in Afrikaans on UK flights. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, okay, first of all, <laughs> there's a, a, according to Ryanair, and I, I, I have zero information on whether this is true or not. According to Ryanair, there's a high prevalence of fraudulent South African passports. So now if you're traveling to the UK, I guess within Europe, probably within Europe, because now the UK is not part of the EU anymore, all the rules have changed, right? Thanks, Brexit. Right. But anyway, so if you don't, so if you have a South African passport, it might be fraudulent. So if you're going to fly to the UK, we need to have proof that you're really South African. And so they're forcing people to use Afrikaans, which is very closely related to Dutch. It's a, you know, it's a colonial language, just like English. And not everybody in South Africa speaks it. English is also pretty common in South Africa. So if they are an English speaker, they still could be South African. Yeah. (laughs) And on top of that, South Africa has 11 official languages. Afrikaans is only one of them. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is not a situation (laughs) even where Afrikaans is, like, the only official language. No. It's, like, 11. (laughs) And English is one of them. Yes, English is one of them. Mm -hmm. And so, like, depending on where you or your family, like, what situation you (laughs) are raised in, you might not be speaking Afrikaans at all. It's possible. I mean, if you're traveling, I guess maybe there's a slightly higher chance that you're speaking, that you also sure, speak okay. Afrikaans. Yeah. But only 13% speak it as a first language in, in South Africa. Right? And how comfortable do you feel taking a quote-unquote test, whatever that means, in it? Like, that's a whole other ballgame. <laughs> yeah. The content has South African general knowledge. I, I was listening to someone, I think it was on BBC World Service podcast, talk about it. He's South African, speaks Afrikaans, and he said that he still missed two of the questions because, you know, like. <laughs> oh, is it like, who's your first president or something like that? Like those kind of questions? Probably. Yes, yeah, probably those kind of questions. I don't remember which ones he missed, but, you know, like. Yeah. Yes, of course, not everyone's going to, even if you are from South Africa and you speak Afrikaans. You still might not get all of them right. And I don't know what the cutoff is. And Afrikaans is the third most spoken mother tongue, whatever first language, after Zula and Isihosa. So it's like number three. So it's not even number one. Okay. It's not even number one. Oh my god. Wow. During apartheid, the white Afrikaners ruled the country. Yeah, so it's like... Asking people to use a language that's associated with apartheid. <laughs> yeah. Using content questions that, I mean, probably most South Africans could pass, but maybe not all of them. And it's apparently also riddled with grammatical and spelling errors. So someone who, like, was this written not by an, like, an African speaker? <laughs> My guess is it was written in English first. Someone translated, translated to, Afri- to Afrikaans. Who knows if they use Google Translate or something? I don't, probably not. But, you know, they, who knows, like, who translated it? Probably not a first language speaker or maybe someone who's just not a, trans- a, a good translator. You know, that's not their yeah. job. Right. 
Which I feel like this would be like a situation where you'd want someone whose job is that to make sure right. that this is a good translation. I mean, if you're going to do this, do it properly. But don't do this. <laughs> it is bad. No, it's bad. The U.S. citizenship test in English asks questions like, you know, about George Washington or whatever. But it's like these people are expected to know these things when a lot of people that were born here just don't remember learning them. And we don't have that. (laughs) This knowledge is at the ready all the time. That's what it reminds me of. Okay, so I'll ask you the equivalent American questions. Okay. What's the international dialing code for the U.S.? One? Yes. Okay. What's what's its capital city? Washington, D.C. And who's the current president of the country? (laughs) Uh, Biden. Yeah. So at least you would pass those three questions. Okay. (laughs) Oh, okay. So now that I'm reading further down, I see the guy that I heard on the the podcast, or at least I would think it was, he says he would have uh, failed this. Oh, this test and only got five questions right. Wow. Uh, no, part of it is because the last time he ever spoke or wrote anything in Afrikaans was in high school. Ah, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's just, it feels like it's a second language, obviously. And it just feels like something he wants to kind of push back. It's not part of his current life, right? He He actually swore to never speak Afrikaans again after he left high school because all of the you know, uh, the horrible history yeah, of Africa. Yeah, a lot just, of baggage. There's a lot of baggage, right? He's black, so he's just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point, though. Like, what if you were, like, you're older, and you're like, man, I haven't dealt with Afrikaans since high school. Like, what if it's been decades? <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. It would be really hard. Uh, and this is kind of like a, a tiny, high-pressure situation here. Yeah, and on top of all of this, out of all the colonial languages, English is used the most, in of- officially and in business. Yeah. That's, that's the language, like, if you're going to use a colonial language, it's English. It's right, right. Afrikaans. Wow. That, that's fucked. That's... I guess I can sort of understand the concern about, you know, fraudulent passports, I guess. But if that's your concern, surely there's another way... Right. To I don't I don't even know if it's like the airline's business, frankly. It's the yeah. the border guard's business, one hundred percent, right? So I guess it makes it difficult because if you fly someone into the UK and then they're they're, you know, deported or they're, they're they're not allowed in the country, you have to fly them back. So I guess that's why they want to do it. But still <laughs> this is not a great way to handle it. Yeah. And I don't have a better solution. I'm not saying I do, but not this. After all this terrible stuff we talked about, here's a conversation I really enjoyed having. <laughs> yeah, here's some more uplifting conversations for yeah. sure. Yeah. This episode is supported by Finding Five, the tech nonprofit that enables academic researchers to create and run online behavioral research studies in the cloud, www.findingfive.com. So their platform is best suited for stimulus presentation types of studies that consist of hundreds of randomized trials per study. They are also a 501c3 nonprofit, so they listen to their users. They don't have any shareholders. Their mission is about trying to lower the technical barriers to 
transitioning into online experiments. Researchers can be left to think about like research questions, like how am I best, like what are the best stimuli to present to get this, or you know, to test this kind of response instead of like having to worry about like where they're gonna host the study if it's reliable enough. Are they gonna, you know, you don't want to lose your data. So you with something like Finding Five, it means that you have a reliable server and you don't have to worry about like losing precious data. They also have their own study grammar for the, for building the experiments. They use academic terms that are already familiar to researchers instead of using programming jargon. They have really nice features like exclusion criteria and coming up, they're going to have demographics filters. It's also uh, financially accessible because creating the studies is completely free. There's no feature restrictions to the study grammar. Even if you don't pay for a subscription, it's only when you start collecting data that you start having to pay. And it's considerably lower price than alternative solutions. That low fee is just to maintain the operation of the nonprofit and not to make a profit. There's a promotional code for listeners of the Vocal Fries. You get a one month pro subscription for free, and that comes with all the premium features and 100 free participants for the that one month. And the US server is www.finding5.com, and the promotional code is FF-US-Fries. And if you are not in the US uh, or close to the US, you're, you might want to use the EU server instead, and that is eu.finding5.com, and the promotional code is FF-EU-Fries. And that expires on August 31st, 2022, midnight Eastern Daylight Time. Try to create the study first and then redeem the code. Don't waste your code until you're ready to run something. Yes. (laughs) So have, have fun collecting data. Today we're very excited. We have two guests. Dr. Andrea Kalude, who's a senior lecturer in linguistics at the University of Waikato, New Zealand. She has a background in mathematics and linguistics and researches spoken grammar, language evolution, loanwords, and just about any quantitative language-related question she can get data on. She is the editor-in-chief of Te Reo, the Journal of the Linguistic Society of New Zealand. And Dr. Laurie Bauer is Emeritus Professor of Linguistics in the School of Linguistics and Applied Language Studies at the University of Wellington. He is a descriptive linguist whose main interest is in morphology and, in particular, word formation. In 2017, he won the Royal Society of New Zealand's Humanities Arunui Medal for Research or Innovative Work of Outstanding Merit in the Humanities. And together, they wrote The Mysteries of English Language, A Guide to Complexities of the English Language, and also edited Questions About Language, What Everybody Should Know About Language in the 21st Century. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yay, so excited to have you. Laurie, I love morphology and word formation. I just have to say that. It is one of my favorite bits about linguistics. Yeah, it's really fun. I think that was the first thing that I was like, oh, wow, language is so cool when I got to the morphology section of the first linguistics (laughs) class I was ever in. Yeah, and it makes uh, undergrads excited, I think. It's really easy to get them excited about words and word bits and stuff. Yeah, and it starts off easy and then it rapidly gets harder as well. It does. (laughs) Well, yes. It's true. Oh, boy. (laughs) The last thing I ever taught was a morphology class and... Oh boy, there were some things in there that I had never encountered before. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is a field that I don't know. Yeah. And Andrea, I was just going to say that a lot of people would be like mathematics and linguistics. They don't, a lot of people don't realize how mathematical certain subfields of linguistics really is. 
Would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. In fact, when I graduated from the University of Auckland in, in New Zealand, I was one of two people who had just about in the history of the university had graduated with a BA in linguistics and a BSc, a science degree in maths. The two of us kind of clung together for dear life for a little while. I I think there's a lot of overlap patterns, you know, linguists look for patterns and maths is all about patterns. So sometimes I describe grammar as being kind of mass with words sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Why did you want to write this textbook, Mysteries of English Language? There's several things going on. First of all, when we started it, we didn't know it was a textbook. Oh. We just thought it was a book. Mm-hmm. And um, then the publicity people from the press got hold of us and said, well, who's going to read this book? And we had to think about who, who the audience was in more detail than we had, had previously done. And we said, well, actually, this could be useful for all sorts of students of linguistics or English as a foreign language, as well as for the people we'd originally thought about, which is all those people out there who are really, really interested in language and have the faintest idea what to ask, why things are uh, the way they are, and who don't realize that when linguists say, oh, well, there isn't just a simple answer to that question, that the linguists are not just being stupid. <laughs> yeah, or equivocating or not wanting to answer kind of thing. Yeah. 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 I think we were trying to to answer a whole lot of misconception. I'm not sure that we had this overtly in our heads when we started, but one of those misconceptions is that English grammar is like asking which side of the road do you drive on in New Zealand? You drive on the left in New Zealand. There's one answer. So what's the one answer for should I say he or him? Uh, well, uh, there's not one answer. Why not? There's an answer to the question I first asked. Why isn't there an answer to this one? And my favourite way of looking at this is to say it, the question about questions about language in general are much more like, should I wear jeans to this party or not? Mm. And whether you wear jeans to the party, first of all, depends on what else you've got to wear. It depends on whether the party is being run by your younger sister or your potential mother-in-law. It depends on what overt information you've been given about dress code. It depends on, it depends on a whole lot of things. It depends on you. Are you the kind of person who likes to dress down or dress up? Yeah. Um, Are you going to flout, flout the rules that you were given? Yeah. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole bunch of answers depending on a whole bunch of things. And language is like that, not like which side of the road you drive on in New Zealand. <laughs> I like that a lot. Me too. I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting because Laurie and I have never kind of talked about it too much. We, we both wanted to write this book, but we didn't. It's the first time I hear him say that, you know, so it's, it's kind of cool. <laughs> I, I always feel like I come from it in some ways, almost the opposite way in that when I was doing my PhD, I heard a lot of, you know, my friends, as you probably have experienced yourself, you know, people ask, why, what are you doing your PhD on and what are you trying to find out and what's the point of that and all that sort of thing. A lot of the time people kind of were like, English grammar? Does English have any grammar? <laughs> it's kind of like, what are you even doing? What are you even studying? So there were some, some extremes. There were people who thought there was nothing to study. I was just kind of sitting around, you know, watching the equivalent of Netflix all day. And then, the, then there was the other people who thought, grammar, 
oh, yeah, that's just about rules. It's really dull, isn't it? It's like you're going to tell me how bad my language is. That's that's basically what you're doing. You, you're just kind of out there trying to get us all. You're analyzing what I'm saying right now. And you had these extreme opposing kind of views in my head. And And then when I came to teach grammar to undergraduate students, I found that, you know, they get you to write these little descriptions about what the courses are. And a lot of the time, students after they do the course would say, oh, you know, I, I actually never realized we, we're going to learn this kind of stuff in the course. It's really cool, but it's very different to what I actually expected. They would come and say, it's actually really interesting. And it made me think about language in a different way. And so I kind of wanted to write something that would make grammar interesting for people rather than just prescriptive. And, and also like, like the way Laurie talked about analogies with other things, you know, language is like other things in our lives. And so we do language in the way that we do lots of other things and make decisions about various aspects. And so grammar is, is also sometimes choosing and making decisions and they're not clear cap, just like he said. And so hopefully, hopefully it's going to kind of pique the interest of potentially readers that didn't even know linguistics was a thing to actually look more at language following this yeah. book. That's our hope. What stage of your life were you when you realized linguistics was a thing, speaking of? Because I was about 22 when I realized that linguistics was a thing. And I I now know teenagers that have linguistics elective courses in their high schools. You do? So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's a charter school, so that's different in the states. I don't know how how your schools work there, but so like it's a little bit different. But yeah, there's a there's a school nearby that has a linguistics course for high schoolers. I love that. Yeah, I do too. Were you were you older or into your career already? I started off as a linguistics student as an undergraduate. You did, and that was because I was a modern languages student, and I wanted to do something with the language as opposed to with the literature. So it was a very bad reason for getting into linguistics. But <laughs> I turned, I sort of found this course in, the, the course was called French Language with Linguistics and Phonetics. Ooh. And I didn't actually yeah. know what linguistics meant, and I didn't know what phonetics meant. But when I got there in my sort of first week of term in, the, in this new environment, we, we had this wonderful phonetics stuff and I was I was sold and I just continued from there that's really cool I was very privileged I actually learned about linguistics when I was about 17 and if Mr Greenwood my literature high school teacher is listening he probably isn't but if he is (laughs) it's because of you and he basically was married to an applied linguist, Jackie Greenwood, mm-hmm. who became my colleague as a PhD student. And he kind of knew that I was good at math. So I was I was the kid, the foreign kid in the high school that that was good at math. And that was me. And and he said, Yeah, you're good at math, so you should do linguistics. And I was like, What? What are you even talking about? <laughs> and I always wanted to be a math high school teacher like my mom. And so I knew I was gonna do maths, but then but then I didn't, I wasn't very sold on that many other sciences. And so I enrolled in linguistics because of Mr. Greenwood and ended up with this conjoined degree, which was always a bit awkward because nothing fit quite right in terms of course schedules. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree and I came to doing kind of the teaching diploma, I realized that even though my grades in maths were always consistently much better, I never got an A plus linguistics ever in my undergrad. I was kind of 
interested to do a bit more. And I thought, well, I could do maths. I'm good at maths. Clearly, <laughs> much better. <laughs> but then I thought, but well, linguistics is sort of my hobby. And they say you should do the thing that you like. So I kind of continued with linguistics. Kind of still haven't got around to teaching maths, but maybe one day. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I was 18. I was in my first year of university and I was in engineering because I was also pretty oh. good at math. <laughs> And I hated it. I hated engineering so much. I was like, this is not for me. So I was like, what am I going to do? Physics? I don't know. And I was looking and I found this thing called linguistics, which I'd never heard of. And it seemed to be science and language. And I love both those things. And I was just like, ah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, so many people don't realize that, yes, it's this it's the science of language. There's so many different ways to approach it. But it's so exciting for you because this book could be like that moment for yeah, people. Yeah, it definitely could be that entree. they discover linguistics. Well, we'd like to think so. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. We'd like to think so. Yeah. It's not Christmas, but Christmas presents for your favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. It comes in paperback. <laughs> and it's a good length. That's a good length, right? Yeah. It's not like one of those huge textbooks that you imagine for like a psychology course or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, we wanted it to be, so it's 161 pages and we wanted it to be the kind of thing you can sit and flick through and not read the chapters sort of from start to finish. And if you haven't read chapter two, then chapter four isn't going to make much sense. We, we wanted it to be the kind of thing that you could quickly sort of pick up and then read for a bit and read one chapter and then maybe put it down and do something else and read another. Yeah. 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 And it's definitely, yeah. it is definitely readable in that sense that you definitely can just dip in and out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we want it to be fun writing. I, I'm really, really keen on writing. You know, I have this thing that Laurie's heard me say before where I, I walk into a bookshop and then there's mm-hmm. like rows and rows of books on popular science, you know, black holes and, you know, no, no disrespect to those kinds of really interesting subjects. But I think Nobody's seen black holes, you know, really. How relevant is this to your life? But language, you're using it every day. You should, you should, why are there not rows and rows of books of linguistics, you know, oriented kind of reading for lay audience? You know, I think everybody would be interested in linguistics and they don't need to do a whole degree in the subject and they could still glean a lot of really interesting facts and information just from that. And so, yeah, I kind of, I kind of think that linguists have missed a few tricks by not kind of focusing attention on, on like you say yourselves, not many people know about the subject. Laurie's written many books that are for a very wide audience. And his, as an undergraduate student, I, let, I read his language myths book that he did with Peter Trudgill and thought it was just wonderful. And so this book actually grew out of me saying, remember that book you did? It was so great. I loved it. <laughs> oh, I love that. So did you know each other? Did some? Did you reach out? Like, how did you come to be the two people writing this book? Well, well <laughs> there by hangs a tail. Interestingly <laughs> enough, but Andrea and I have the same supervisor for our PhDs. Oh. I was the first student who was supervised by Jim, who, when I came across him, was at the University of Edinburgh. And Andrea was the last of his supervisors. He did nothing wrong. He he just wanted to retire. I just want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you ruined him forever. <laughs> and we we knew each other partly because of that connection, mm. partly because um, the number of linguists in New Zealand is fairly small at the best of yes. times. <laughs> and you know everybody. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And 
then the topic of this came up and we sort of talked about it and it, we, it just sort of kept going, didn't it, Andrea? What Laurie has kind of humbly missed out is that I wanted to do a book on loanwords and I wanted to do a popular linguistics book. And I I had a bunch of Laurie's books, not just the language miss book. And in fact, I wanted to write like that myself. And I'd never written a book at all. And so I was told, you know, if you wanted to do like one of those, you should contact Laurie. So Janet Holmes told me, you you get in touch with Laurie. And and so I did. And I reached out and said, Laurie, would you would you help me put a book proposal together? Well, I give me a bit of advice and guidance and things like that. And then I explained how much I like the language miss book. And and he sort of, I think you kind of casually ignored the give me advice about the loanwords book. And I think you went straight to <laughs> I really like the language myths book. You know, I'm glad you bring that up because we need to do another one of those. And, and I said, yes, yes, you totally should. And he said, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. I'm doing whatever is required. <laughs> and so he actually kind of took this massive risk you know writing a book with someone is yeah I mean it's it's pretty involved so and we'd never worked together and I was clearly a newbie in this scene and so I'm very grateful that Laurie kind of said yeah well why don't we do a book together and so that's how the language questions book came about which we both enjoyed doing and so then after that while we were finishing that off I think we were talking and and I was saying how grammar's you know somebody needs to make grammar cool again and we need to you know have more books about popular kind of ideas circulating in grammar that people outside of academia need to know about. And he said, well, we should do a book. Well, I think that having done the first one and having enjoyed doing it so much, the second one was much easier. And it's also easier when you know your collaborator and you're working with them rather than trying to herd the cats of putting a book of readings oh, together. Oh, I know. So much harder right. to have a bunch yeah. of other authors involved. Having worked with Andrea and having seen um, the levels of energy and enthusiasm that she puts into these things, <laughs> one, it was it was a lot easier to, to go forward to that second one. And it was great fun. We yeah, really enjoyed it. It was really great. I mean, it helps that we work in the same way. We work quite similarly in terms of we write differently, but we work. We have the same ideas about steady writing. We kind of had a chapter a month maybe or something. Well, I don't know what, what we had a bit of a rhythm going and, and within about six months, we, we kind of nailed it and we would send each other drafts and read and have like a weekly Zoom and because we're in different cities. So I don't know if you'll, you know much about New Zealand, but we're about an hour flight away from each other. So 800 kilometers. No, not about 400. Under. Okay, there you go. I've embarrassed myself. It's a seven-hour drive, okay. yes, and one hour flight. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. Got it. I mean, that, that doesn't help because the United States, you can drive so much faster than anywhere else. So, oh. <laughs> Well, but the, the point is we wouldn't just jump in the car and say, I'll see you no. for lunch, which is terrible, terrible right. fact that I've whined and winched about a lot because, <laughs> because it would be so nice to be able to kind of just meet in person but yeah but we have yeah we, we we kind of had some very similar ideas about working style and about kind of keeping the book going and and sort of meeting the kind of deadlines that we set out and I think that really help, helps right when you know that the other person you don't have to worry about obviously I mean Laurie's got an amazing track record but again with me <laughs> but I, I was always sort of sitting there thinking oh gosh I should do this we need to do this and oh I don't know. I'll get around to it. And then Andrea would send me an email and say, I've done it. And you'd say, oh, oh, right. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. So, yeah. so, yes, it worked well. It worked well. And as, as I said, it was, it was fun. Yep. We, we had these meetings over the internet. 
But we spent the whole time laughing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I think at one point I just had this I just have this image. There were some pieces of paper that we'd read over, you know, and over and over and and over. And you get to a point where you can't see things in your draft anymore. And I had these loose bits of paper. I just threw them over there. And I said, okay, we're done. <laughs> I remember Laurie just looking at me like, oh, my God, she's lost the plot. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, What did you mean by complexities? (laughs) Laurie? (laughs) I think that linguists have overcomplicated grammar. Mm. I think that we have made grammar too complicated for your average student. I think that for the brain to operate with grammar, it must be a lot simpler than we linguists think it is. And that's because we know too much. But that doesn't mean it's simple. And as I said back at the beginning, people think that there should be simple answers and there aren't simple answers. And so the complexities, reasons why there are no simple answers. And that's all sorts of reasons, like um, the languages in the process of change is one of the ones that comes across, I think, in the book more frequently perhaps than any other. The fact that we don't speak the way we write is is another one which comes back in. The fact that we hear and these days think we understand English from different places around the world in a way that even 70, 80 years ago, people didn't. In the Second World War, American servicemen in Europe and in the Pacific weren't understood by the English speakers around them. They had to have little books telling, translating. <laughs> How have I never heard this before? Well, I mean, you know, Hollywood has a lot to answer for. Yes. Occasionally, some of it might be good. And nowadays, if I hear an American speaking, I'm not going, oh, I can't understand this person. I mean, yes, there are Americans who I can't understand. There are Britons I can't understand. I was just about to say, have you, if, if, whenever I go to Scotland, you know. <laughs> oh, mm, my family's Scottish and, oh, man, some of, the, some of my relatives I do not understand. But... If you hear American in one ear and British in the other ear regularly, you're hearing two different things, and you're not really aware of how different they are. And then somebody says, should it be the American version or the British version? You say, they both sound right. And then you get confused, and you you start saying, well, there must be a right answer. No, 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 no. It's not that there must be a right answer. It's that... Things are more complicated than you think they are. That's your complexity. One that's coming to mind right now for me is how some people will use the past tense form. Some people use the past participle for past tense. So I saw him or I seen him. Yep. And I remember thinking before I knew what linguistics was, how very wrong the people that said I seen him were. And and these people are including my mother who says, I see, you know, so she uses the past participle because I think it's like, at least in the U.S., certainly a Southern influenced thing. I'm not I'm not quite sure. But it really sucks growing up thinking that your parents don't do language right. And But this is what we're learning in school when we learn, quote unquote, grammar. And so I think that it's great to have a book like this because you 
are introducing the type of grammar that linguists love, not the type of grammar that makes little kids be like, but my mom says it that way. Okay, I guess she's wrong. You know? Yeah, I. that's that's really interesting story. And I think we, we, we really sympathize with that, don't we, Laurie, in New Zealand? Because, because so we have, you know, Maori English is one of the varieties that, that New Zealand New Zealanders speak in for, I'm not sure, it's hard to know exactly because we don't have sufficient data to really kind of nail this down, but, but there's, a, there's been indications that Maori English um, speakers also use that form. And, and when, yeah, when children at school use it and it's been part of their repertoire all their lives and it's part of their extended family, their, you know, as we say, their whanau, their friends, their family, that, and then they're told that's bad, that's bad English, then that translates to some really bad things down the line in terms of achievement and, and feeling of kind of intelligence and self-worth. We associate language with intelligence, right? And so it's a bit like being bad at math. If you're bad at maths, sometimes people think, well, you're not very clever then or something like that. I used to tutor math privately a lot, and this is how I knew that I wanted to be a math teacher. And a lot of the time, the biggest problem both parents actually and children is that, yeah, the kids would go home and sort of think that if they can't do maths at school, then there's something wrong with their brain somehow. And I think language is similar, that kind of attitude. And and I think it's really difficult for teachers because teachers kind of should obviously be doing linguistics. <laughs> oh, yes. We would say oh, that. Yeah. We would say that. We would say that. But I do think that would help a lot. I think, you know, you can learn mathematical thinking even through language and not get as scared by the symbols. So yeah. I don't know. I just think it would unlock a lot of things for kids if we taught it as a as part or of maybe the curriculum. they could have linguists come in and give seminars and talks. And I mean, yeah. we... Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is happening in the United States a little bit. Like I yep. do know some friends down there who have gone to high school high schools and middle schools to like do like mm-hmm. little projects with them. Oh, lovely. That's really I cool. Yeah. Don't think it's as much of a thing here in Canada, sadly. I don't think it's a thing in New Zealand, but maybe Laurie knows otherwise. I, don't. I was going to say, if you think about it, you know, we had Lebov in the 1960s telling us how wrong this was and yep. trying to go following on from him in England. Yeah. And you'd think that by now it would have trickled through to teacher training programs that saying seen instead of see is not a matter of intelligence and not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of choices that people make to indicate social coherence in some way or another. And it's not that difficult a message, but it is one that people are very resistant to. And perhaps perhaps the book will help, but I suspect that's a, a, a very large brick wall that linguists are banging their heads against. It is. And it's, it is frustrating to me. Yeah, because I feel like this is the conversation we have every day, all the time. Why aren't why isn't anyone listening to us? When I was at with the LSA a few years ago, was it Lisa Green? I think it was Lisa Green said, look, advertisers know you have to say the same thing over and over and over again. So we shouldn't get frustrated. Mm. We just need to keep saying this. And part of it is we don't really have a good PR team behind us. You know, like there would be a way, I think, to help, but uh, we haven't done all that work yet. But anyway, it's still Actually, I don't know if, if you've seen the language log. There's, there's this lovely, one of the, oh, God, what is, 
I think it's Mark Johnson, I want to say Mark Johnson, in one of the LSA addresses many years ago, did this really lovely talk about how linguists need to talk to the people, you know, out there, what I like to call it, the people, and and how he had this lovely little cover of uh, Cosmopolitan magazine done up with linguistics is sexy and all of this kind of sort of stuff where we <laughs> oh, should sell linguistics stuff to the to to people in a digestible way. Like you're saying, it really reminded me of that. It's such a lovely idea and lovely. I read that image really spoke to me because I thought, yeah, you know, we don't have the big PR teams. And a lot of the time we talk amongst ourselves and we are preaching to the converted. <laughs> but really, I mean, yeah. it's nice to actually get some of these ideas out of academia. And and this is one of the reasons why, I, I mean, I'm personally very passionate about writing pieces, sometimes little pieces. And again, Laurie and I are part of a team that he set up that has a regular language column in New Zealand newspapers and, and online as well oh, called great. Language Matters. And every fortnight, one of the four of us writes something very small, 600 words, sort of, you know, a couple of paragraphs, like three paragraphs in terms of abstract stuff. And, and they're just little snippets and they're so little. But I like to think that it's just another avenue to reach maybe an audience that wouldn't otherwise kind of have these ideas. Although some of the feedback we get clearly shows the brick wall, Laurie, doesn't it? <laughs> the brick wall every now and then just comes up. Yes, but but isn't it bad? <laughs> uh, I had one one correspondent who said, oh, thank you for explaining all that to me, but I'm just going to believe what I've always believed anyway. Yeah, we, we get similar feedback oh, wow. too. Yeah. Really? You know, like we our do. whole... Yeah. So like the very first episode we did was on vocal fry and like, you know, stop judging people for having vocal fry. It's sexist. It doesn't, it's not a real thing to be worried about. And uh, every once in a while we still get like someone who'll be just like, no, you're wrong. It's like, okay. Actually, the, yeah. the thing that I've, I once got at least was, I thought was a good dialogue to engage in with was someone saying, yeah, this is all very well. It sounds all very PC and you know, yeah, yeah. But isn't it, you're a mom, you know, isn't it, isn't it true that you're, you're going to rob your children of a very good job if you teach them this nonsense about bad grammar? I mean, don't you want your kid to get a job when, when they grow up? I think that's one of the things that we do need to address and talk about how, you know, it's really, really important that children and individuals in general actually have access to different repertoires and and talk about the benefits of the COVID prestige that, you, you know, forms that the fact that you can walk into the community and actually be able to speak the local regional variants and your your home language to your community so you can be part of the community to be having all of those social ties that are really, really important. And at the same time, you can maintain this other repertoire that you know that, yes, in a formal interview, and when you write your lecture, if you're my student and you're listening to this, don't just go, hey, smiley face, I have a name and I'd like a, a <laughs> greeting and a clothing and formal English grammar. You know, that's fine. That's how you should be doing that. But then if, if you're talking with your, your inner group of circle of friends, then you're going to use the appropriate forms there to maintain those social ties. So yeah, it's really complicated. If you go on social media, again, there'll be different norms and conventions. And it's part of the job that you have to kind of take on as an active member within a society and, and actually manage all the different repertoires. And they're all important in their right place. 
I was told if you go into the wrong pub in in England and you use really posh standard English, you could get stabbed. Wow. Here's where PR would be good, though, because the problem we run into is that I think right now we're at this kind of like middle ground or maybe it's kind of like purgatory where people are like, okay, well, fine. The language you have that you grew up with is fine. But you need to learn what we teach you in school because that's the right one. So I think that like, we're stuck. We're like, it's cool that you have that one. You can use that with your family and we appreciate that you have it. But there's still a right way. Like, it's like people are kind of stuck. We, we've got to get rid of the right or wrong rather than, I mean, you know, there's, there's right for the pub that Andrea doesn't want to go into. And there's, <laughs> there's, there's right for teaching in the university. And let me tell you a little personal story, if I may. I, I told you that when I first got to university, we, I met phonetics for the first time. And one of the things we did in the very first week, we were sent down to make a recording of our own voice in the, down into the depths of the basement and headphones <laughs> on the level. This was, this was real serious stuff. We read this little story onto tape. And um, then the very last week of the academic year, come October, we were sent back down and we were issued with our tape. And we were told to transcribe the first sentence of that tape. And now that we've learned all how, how to do transcription and so on. So, yes, I can do this. And I put on, the, put on my headphones and started listening in there. I heard a character saying, there was once a young rat named Arthur who could never take the trouble to make up his mind. And I thought, I don't talk like that anymore. Who's this stranger? <laughs> Interesting. I had adopted, a, I want a better term, a university voice in the course of that first year of undergraduate study that just moved me away from the local place that I'd grown up. It was easier for me to do than it would have been for some people because both my parents were speakers. My my father had grown up in London and was a speaker of London English, middle-class London English anyway. And my mother had travelled all over the place and got a fairly neutral accent unless she was talking to her sisters or brothers and sisters, in which case she went in the local direction. But I had made that transition. And I think looking back, I'm very interested that I had because I, I, the, the social pressures were really weird. I was in Edinburgh. I could have said, um, oh, I, that's the way it is now. <laughs> but I didn't. I had this, I had this, this English version. That's so illustrative of what is happening. It's thank you for sharing that. I I think about how I I tend to like reduce my vowel space when I'm around my my Mexican family, the Spanish speaking side. So I get like less vowels, more like Spanish or Chicano English or whatever. But it's amazing how many different voices we have (laughs) depending on on where we are. Uh, and what we're trying to accomplish, even if it's subconsciously. And just how flexible we are. Yeah. And now I feel left out because I only have this boring-ass Canadian accent. <laughs> I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I know. I did, it did get a little Americanized when I was down in the States for 12 years, but I, I think it's it coming back to my former Vancouver self. 
Yeah, your sorry's <laughs> gone kind of got more American. Like, I, yeah, a... I switched from sorry to sorry, but I think I'm back to sorry. This is one of the questions I've, uh, you know, I think about a lot because I wrote my whole dissertation on the equivalent of the in Squamish. So you have a you have a chapter on the <laughs> called all the way from the Ukraine, the definite article. So first of all, can you explain what the issue is with the Ukraine? And then maybe we could talk about what's going on there. The thing with the is that it varies, right? And as soon as things vary, then linguists kind of want to know about it. Why does it vary? How does it vary? You know, what does it mean? And the Ukraine is a particular case that that I might come back to in a minute because it has its own kind of history. But there's other place names where you can say, I think we have one from New Zealand, the Waikato, Waikato. So you can say, I'm from Waikato, or you can say from Waikato. And you can say either form. And sometimes people say one or the other and it varies. And so we now want to know why. Why does it vary? And how do you decide which form to use? And people like me who are not native speakers... You know, it's a mess for us because we're all, all, always feeling like we're getting it wrong. <laughs> and we want that nice rule that Laurie talks about. We want to, to be told, this is the right way. Now you shall always do like this. And then everyone's happy. <laughs> but of course, English grammar has other plans. <laughs> <laughs> is this like the hospital? Is this like a similar thing? Because we don't say the hospital. We're going wow. to hospital versus we're going to the hospital. Oh, to funny. hospital. Yeah, so we have the, like, we would never say go to hospital in the U.S. We would say that in New Zealand, I think. Don't we, Laurie? Do we say that? I feel like we say that. If I'm going to the hospital, I'm probably going to visit somebody. If I'm going to hospital, I'm ill. Yeah, true. That is oh. right. Yeah. Oh. You're not coming out. Well, you are, hopefully, but <laughs> but you're staying at least overnight, probably. This is, this is the Romanian way of thinking about how it's huh. hospitals. But those things pose problems for people. Then there's also that fact that sometimes you get other meanings that are attached to a little bit like like Laurie demonstrated with hospital. There's there's more to it than just the the that seems to come with the the, but we can't explain that it's necessarily tied in with that. We don't we don't know that it's tied in with that. So for example, if I said to you, here come the Americans, then there's kind of a distancing thing, and presumably I'm not American. I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't say to you, here come the Romanians. I mean, I might if I'm trying to say I'm not one of those kinds of Romanians. And that makes a statement in, in itself of what, what I think about that group of Romanians. And it just gets really complicated. There's It's very really yeah. subtle and quite, you know, some people might think, you know, overthinking. <laughs> but there's there's quite a bit of baggage that comes along in terms of what the well, the presence or the absence of that seems to to correlate with, although we can't explain it in terms of just the article alone, right? It's 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 kind of impossible to tie it with that. But yet the two different forms seem to have slightly different, here comes the wife. Is that the wife ringing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She She's not someone who's very nice, potentially. So again, the points out the wife, but in this case points out a not very nice wife. Presumably there's no other wives involved, but I'm not sure. Sometimes yeah. it also depends on whether you're including yourself in that group or what kind of judgment value you're trying to, like it comes with some kind of judgment. It it varies a bit on the group and the context and who's saying it, but it comes with a judgment. And you think, well, but wait, that's just a little, tiny, little definite article. <laughs> it's not supposed to have this great big job. It's not an adjective. Yeah. But it's one of our most frequent words in English. It's a, it's, it's the it's a most. It's the most. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the problem in New Zealand, which I don't know whether you've got it in the US at all. I doubt. I think it's a local thing. 
that usage of those changing with place names. So that Wellington is on what I would call Cook Strait. The, uh, you can think of some other strait that separates America from some other large country, if you prefer. I just say Cook Strait. People on weather forecasts have started saying the Cook Strait. That seems very natural to me, the Cook Strait. We've got we've got a bunch of islands off to the east of New Zealand called the Chatham Islands. But weather forecasters tend to say Chatham Islands with no the. In hmm. um, we've got two major islands in New Zealand, which the New Zealanders traditionally call the North Island and the South Island. Britons coming to New Zealand typically called them North Island and South Island. And now that no-the form, North Island and South Island, is even spreading to New Zealanders. So we've got a whole lot, quite apart from all the things that Andrea was talking about, we've got ongoing change just in a little corner of the universe of the, but it's confusing. (laughs) <laughs> and we and we don't know what we don't know why we don't know what's going on. Right. What does what does language being in flux like this tell us in a big picture kind of way? And why why would you would you in this book focus on bits that are in flux? Language is a living thing. It's for the people by the people. It's you know you can't constrain it. You can't tie it down. You can't force it down alleyways it doesn't want to go down. And it's. Yeah, it's sort of about us and for us. So it's constantly going to be living. Yeah, it feels very democratic and like the most I- ideal sense of it. <laughs> it's for and by the people that use it. Well, democratic, in some ways, I-, I like the idea of democratic, but I also think it's problematic as a word because I think, yeah, it's it kind of suggests that there is, sort of universal agreement and the majority rules. And unfortunately, I don't think it's a majority That's rules true. thing here. I think there's still a lot of the, the, the few people in power dictate certain things at certain levels, oh, but, but they can't constrain it. And so there's that aspect to it. But but certainly, I think regardless of that brick wall, you know, the double negative, it's still going. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I completely agree. It's the reason why we have some sort of standardized form that is taught in school, right? There's actually the people that maybe speak that way. It's hard to say that people speak that way because it's really based on writing, but they certainly must be the minority. So if majority was ruling, it would be, let's accept that this is, you know, much more complicated than trying to teach a standard in school. Absolutely. Yeah. At the very least, double negative would win out. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Do you think the double negative is partly not winning out because of the disdain, you know, of the English against the French? Uh, Maybe, but is that the original reason that it was introduced? No, no, I'm sure it's not. I I don't know the history. Laurie Laurie probably knows. He's not. He's shaking his head. Oh, my God. No. I think think Jesperson had it right. Negation is important. So if you want to negate, you've got to say negation clearly. And after a while, just having one bit of negation sort of wears thin because people don't pay attention to them. They might have looked away at that moment or something. So 
to make sure you put in two bits of negation and, and then it's much more. And then somebody says, hang on, we don't need two bits of negation. We can get rid of one of these and go back to having one bit of negation. And somebody said, oh, this isn't strong enough. We must have two bits of negation. <laughs> and or then three, if or <laughs> yeah. three or four. Three or five, you get the sort of can't get into no coop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Is there a favorite bit of English that you think, like the favorite weird bit of English? Yeah, okay. Since we're talking <laughs> about double negatives, <laughs> one of my favorite bits of English, and it proves that the logic that we use when we're speaking is not a mathematical logic. It's a different kind of logic. It's still logical, but it's not the same as mathematical. Is if you say, he's really clever, and you answer, yeah, right. That's a double positive making a negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, some people say, yeah, yeah. Double positive making a negative. <laughs> is that weird or is that weird? <laughs> You're right. It's weird from a mathematical perspective, but not maybe from a different view. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great. I love that. What about you, Andrea? Wow. Oh, I was kind of flicking through the book to try and remember <laughs> things. But you know what? I, I mean, a lot of the time, the things that I've been kind of grappling with are kind of larger chunks of, of kind of weird syntax, if you want. Personally, I think adjectives are really fascinating. And I, I really enjoyed Laurie's chapter on adjectives and the discussion on just the weird things. I mean, as a non-native speaker, I still remember learning English actually in Canada when I was a teenager and thinking, this is just nuts. Like, how does this even work? And this idea that you can have a more interesting uh, thing. And I hear my kids playing around with adjectives. This is more gooder than that, mommy. This is more gooder. I just want this. And sometimes, you know, that because they're a bit older now, they know that's not the right thing. And so they do it for effect. They're already pretty good linguists, you know. <laughs> they they totally yeah. use language for language play. And I think all the different adjective forms and the way we play around with them for emphasis and for style, it's just really fun and quite interesting and really difficult to know. Sometimes I really don't know when I'm writing. I think, is this more tricky or trickier? Can I say either? And then I have to look. And then I think... Oh my God, I should know this. <laughs> I write about this kind of stuff. Um, it's so much fun writing a book like this. And it's also quite hard because sometimes people think, well, you're a linguist and you should, I don't know, have it all down as well. And and no no typos. And if you have any grammar in your language, then what kind of grammarian are you? And then I often say, well, you know, your mechanic probably drives really rubbish cars and your doctor probably doesn't have the best of health. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's my cultural answer to that. Also, typos have nothing to do with understanding language. Like nothing. It's, yeah, it's like just a yeah, brain I mean, fart. I often tell people that I've worked a lot on kind of problems of New Zealand English because as a foreigner, this is this is the thing I've been trying for years to get, you know, to grips with. I mean, this is new to me. I'm I'm still trying to learn it to the point where I made a career of it to try and figure out how this works, how this English thing works. <laughs> And you'll never pin it down because it's changing all the time. <laughs> Just bring us back to Earth and stop these flights of fancy. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Well, thank well, you. This has been so much fun. Yeah, thank you thank so much you. for doing this. This, this. Yeah, this was really a lot of fun. We always leave our listeners with one final message. Don't be an asshole. 
Okay, so this month we would like to thank Diane Lillo Martin for Yay. becoming a patron. Yay! Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Appreciate yes. it. I kind of had a. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you got all I don't know British-ish. Yeah. It, yes. Yes. <laughs> If you would like to become a patron, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash vocalsprizepod. We've got stickers, we've got bonus episodes, and we've got mugs. We do, and tons of bonuses at this point. Yes, in the <laughs> 50s. Yes. 50-something <laughs> bonuses, and another one to come out this month. Yes. The Vocal Fries Podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VocalFriesPod. You can email us at VocalFriesPod at gmail.com, and our website is VocalFriesPod.com. <laughs>